Part 5. Return to Previous Sources. Near the end of 1895, the town of Carlisle, Kansas, fell on troubled times. Due to intense dust storms, the fall harvest had yielded historic lows, and many looked to the oncoming winter with great apprehension. Welcome to Episode 5 of That Be Revival. This week, we check back in with Clara Roberts, the innkeeper who exchanged letters with the solitary guest in Episode 1. In this episode, we will hear a passage from Clara's personal notebook, written days before Thanksgiving. As you listen, take note of how the year has shaped Clara's perspective. Though her characteristic clarity remains intact, her account captures the agitation the town felt as the days grew shorter and the air grew colder. It is November 24th, 1895. November 24th, 1895. All of us in Carlisle are agitated these days. A mean case of agitation indeed. And so it certainly was of no aid to our distemper that a tree caught fire in the center of town this morning. I count it quite strange, and I must tell it to you. As I write, the nights come sooner, and the stars peek out longer than they are wont to do in these parts. What with the dust and clouds in the sky? I swear, they seem dimmer as well, though. The stars, I mean. My father would have called these thoughts not here nor there, plain superstition. But I say that it just means God wants to see what we do if he turns out the light. That's how it's been. Tests, trials of the weary, they are calling them. Folks come around and wave hello as they pass through the town, and I can see it on their long faces. There is a weight that sits on their shoulders like saddlebags on a horse. Only, they don't have a horse's fortitude to keep their back straight enough to handle it. I see them look to the sky, wondering perhaps when it might rain. Some moments I catch a glance of a neighbor sticking out his tongue, hoping to catch a drop. But there ain't no water to be found, and our brows furrow in wonder of where it might all be waiting, worrying to God that when it's set loose from its hideaway, we won't find a single comfort in its return. Once, I saw a woman twirling a dry strand of wheat in her hands. For some reason, I assume only she knew. I have no fields of my own to tend, only the inn. But we all mind this drought, so I suppose, in a way, we all have our own. I am sorry. I have been in thought, and I cannot resolve the previous one. Words are unwieldy things sometimes. However, what I set out to write this evening cannot afford to be lost in my brain's wandering. I must speak on what I saw when the sun came up this morning. I awoke to a misty orange light clouding the windows of my chamber. I had thought it might be the dawn, but remembered that the dawns have been so gray these weeks. And anyhow, the windows point to the west, and God would not rearrange the sun itself only for me. But as I walked out to the side of those crackling branches, I thought, maybe, after all, he did. I wish you had seen it whoever you are, glancing over my thoughts. The tree consumed in flame. Such a shapely and perfectly placed blaze balanced so well on my favorite little sycamore. Standing in the doorway of the inn and looking out to the flames not 60 or 70 feet away, the tree became the sole aspect of the town. There was no wind, and though it is so dry, There is often dew that sticks weakly to the grass. No one was about, and certainly not with torches anyhow. 
the fire was impossible. No hand could have incited the blaze. It was as if I had stepped into a landscape that you might hang on the wall. Each time I placed my foot, from each step of the inn to each patch of the grass onward, I felt heavy with the spirit of my surroundings. In every inch, I drifted forward. I scarcely remember walking the whole distance, but then I was there in its shadow. The sparks softly popping in the air. The heat warming our town with such grace that I forgot the strangeness and danger of the fire. The sycamore in the town center is the only tree of its kind. Indeed, it is one of the few we have here around what's left of the buildings in this part. It stands 30 feet tall, with a sturdy trunk perhaps four or so feet across. Its branches stretch the wide main path to nearly touch the post office on one side and what used to be the general store on the other. In the summer, the light at noon shines through its branches and the shade is broken by a thousand golden rays. The branches are like the threads of a sheet that are coming unraveled, a tangle that keeps everything together, but just so, broken by the light that shines at dawn and strikes your ragged sheet as it hangs on the clothesline. I was seeing it all as the leaves burned clean away. Little pieces of them would float up into the sky when they were singed so small that they had become lighter than air. All those autumn colors had hung on longer than God had meant them to, and now I knew why. This became the first day of autumn that I saw the twisting branch structure bare, curling every which way up from the dirt, somehow looking so tortured, but at peace. Through the flame it was a beauty, come so swiftly and mysteriously into our lives from no place at all. Even now I am unconvinced I was awake, but I find my truth in the telling. So I must put it all down on this paper to you, to make sure a dream that so quickly transformed into a moment gets remembered as the moment and not as the dream. As my mother would tell me almost every day in my younger years, Clara, there is a unique danger in dreaming so long you forget to wake yourself up. And this morning, I suppose I truly awoke to a hand placed softly on my shoulder. That was the first time I broke my gaze from the flames. I had been standing there for such a time that I forgot myself and had hardly thought that I was alone to see such a sight. I found the kind face of Harriet Book standing beside me, deep bags of weariness under her hazel eyes from keeping the night shift at the railway station. No one came that night, but Harriet, she stood watch all the same. That was Harriet, always seeing things down the tracks that the rest of us hadn't quite made out yet. This morning was no different. I looked up and her eyes met mine. When her voice came, it was fierce, yet soft. We need to stay strong in this, Clara. Harriet Book said. I nodded and soon I saw her truth approaching. Other folks were drifting toward the tree from far away, taking shape from the gray dawn like clouds given human form. The hand fell from my shoulder. Rouse all those who are able. We need to gather each other and bring buckets. She said. There's a pump behind the inn, I told her. She took this inn and turned on her heel to pass instruction to those arriving on the scene. Return to your homes. Gather every able-bodied man and woman. Bring all of the water that you possibly Her first recruit John, was Claude Ranville. He as well began to wander from shape to shape in the cloud of smoke. I could see nodded heads, quick steps. The younger among us ran for their farms and stores to find something of use. At first thought, I took it to mind that I would operate my water pump to fill the buckets. 
But as sure as all calls come, my purpose on this morning crashed to the ground as so many bodies fallen on their knees. Which is, in truth before God, exactly what they were. I saw a tiny group of people kneeling near the tree, their bodies knotted up and their arms clawing at the ground to try to hold on to the world that had been there just before the dawn. They were heedless of Harriet Book's warning, drowning out her calls with their own voices. Some murmuring in unrest, and some wailing in strident tones louder than any thunder. I recognized among the mourners Hubert Powell, his already frail form somehow more gaunt and pale than he had been since the blight upon his house. There was sweat standing in his sparse beard. I could smell its salt when I took him in my arms and pushed his wispy hair from his eyes. The tremors in his body shook me, and I struggled against them to hold tight his agony. His eyes were wide, searching the tree in terror. Oh, Lord, I did not truly believe. Lord God, I did not act upon it. Hush with your worries, Hubert Powell, I told him. He would not have it. He strained against me to lean face first into the dirt, and I couldn't keep my hold on him. I sought help in pulling him from the tree, but my grasping fingers only found Hester Rutledge, the school marm, and the three of us lost our balance and fell to the earth in a heap. But Hester Rutledge arose and stretched a single bony finger toward the tree ignoring all else. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our I feared for Hester and the rest, so close to the tree as they were. Surely a branch would fall and strike one of them, or else they would swoon from the heat. Moving them in their fraught state had become a tall task, and I the only one attending to it. The other battle was still being fought. I saw Amelia Stewart some dozen feet away, leading a few hasty helpers in dousing the driest patches of ground and weeds around the tree. The grass is too brittle and dry. We don't the hardship in all of this was that every patch was the driest patch. The whole township had become so brittle. It was as if the ground was strewn with kindling for miles. Once the first few pails had been emptied, their bearers retreated to fetch more water, while another group ran in to continue dousing the ground. The wind was now rising, and the flames of the tree leaned sharply to the north. A spreading blaze seemed as sure as you'd find flies upon a pig's back. The first bucket thrown at the tree itself doused but a single branch, sending a rain of bark and ash down on myself and the mourners. Before a second bucket could be thrown, a voice cried out and split the mourning in twain. Cease! Cease your folly. In your buckets is not water, but spit and bile upon the face of God and his word. Well... That put a stop to us. All heads turned to face Simon Henley, rarely seen in town, and to no account in the estimation of most folk you can speak to in Carlisle. And yet, here he was, crawled out of the woods for this of all mornings. His pole-like frame, hidden in a ragged and rumpled suit that clearly had not left his body in many weeks' time. His gray eyes glinted above his thin lips, pursed to the point of whiteness, yet dry and chapped near to death. I will welcome guests with goodness in my heart, but if you will permit me to write it, I would be troubled to have any affection for Simon Henley. Others will say the same. I say now what you all should know in your hearts if you are a good Christian on this land. 
God will punish the fool who tries to stop his will. Stop with your buckets and listen to him. That set everyone to silence for a moment. After all, there is not in this land more disquieting than the fear of God. Claude Ranville was the first to pick up his bucket again. I, as well as everyone else here, appreciate your input, Simon Henley. But you know, as well as we all do, that God helps those who help themselves. There's no time for this, son. We don't want this blaze to spread. If it takes the buildings, it will take the fields, and from there, it will take our farms. Amelia Stewart said. Please, Simon, kindly take up a bucket and follow Amelia. Claude Ranville said, but Simon refused. Have you not seen the signs? Do you not see what this is? I waited for him to continue, but he seemed confident in resting on such vagaries. I looked around, but could find no evidence that the crowd at large had yet understood him. The mourners, however, were rapt. At last they had turned from the tree to lend someone their ears, their eyes, their hearts. I heard their words of assent. He speaks truth. And I will send the sword, the famine, and the pestilence among them till they be consumed from off the land that I gave unto them and to their fathers. Jeremiah 24:10. We are cursed. Oh God, a pox upon the land. Hubert Powell spouted. Yes, Hubert Powell. Yes. You know that truth better than anyone in Carlisle. If you must know, I will tell you. Hubert was Carlisle's local tragedy. Just 19 years of age, he had over the past months watched every member of his family be overtaken by consumption. Despite the most modern treatments of glycerin extract the train could bring in, one by one, Hubert's family had perished. And only Hubert's family. The sole cases of consumption in Carlisle in all of 1895. Mother and father and five younger siblings coming to the end of their days miserably inside what little of their broken bodies remained. I suppose this gave him authority to speak on curses, yet I hated to see him in this way, coming to be just as withered in soul as his family had withered in flesh. Now Hester Rutledge spoke. I am sorry for your siblings, Hubert, and I'm sorry for our children. At this last, the air changed around us. Catherine Culver's shoulders fell. Think on our children. Where have they gone? You all act as though the only thing we've lost this autumn is a crop. Yet who here hasn't lost their kin? Think on it. It is true, the young are taking up new ways, but there's no need to go as they've far as- They've escaped our sin. They are not at home. The youngest of us have vanished, and now it is clear that our children have more of an understanding of God than all of you. First the little Beekman girl, then the rest. One by one, they have walked from their homes to leave shadows and dust in their wake. Left family and safety because we weren't providing them a home in God. Each day I hike to a schoolhouse I know will be empty, and all of you are fortunate not to be confronted with this reminder of our failures. How long has it been since you heard a child's laughter? How long since you could teach them a word or a way? They will not write on their slates for me. They will not stamp their snow-covered boots in the entryway, nor will they recite their lessons. Had they a word left to say to us, I am sure to believe they would be here to say it. Their silence is damnation. Hester, please do not tell me what I have lost in the absence of my brothers and sisters. I know well. Amelia Stewart said. I called at the Beekman farm some months ago after Lottie had disappeared. They were having a hard way of it, and Amos was bedridden, but the rest did what they could. I thought myself lucky, but my siblings, 
I feel a responsibility for them. That is the way of the eldest, of course. And I don't know where they've gone any more than you, but each night I light my lamp and wander to the wood with hope of a sign, and that is all I can do. Have you seen it happen, Hester? I've seen it. Not three weeks ago, I was on the back porch. You know how cold it is as the winter months draw on, but when work is done, my younger brothers and sisters like to watch the sunset. It is a thing we do together, as it is such a spectacle. Little Levi was sitting next to me. He had a wool coat on, but he was without shoes. <laughs> I told him to run inside and fetch them lest he catch a cold. He seemed not to hear my request, turning his head to some sound as a small animal does. Levi turned to me on the porch and said, I ought to be going now. And with that, he stood up and walked out barefoot through the yard toward the tree line abutting our property. I could do nothing. He was first, and the rest of my little sisters and brothers were gone within a fortnight, left their bedsheets cold. Children are often strange. I watch them in the paddock, telling stories or birching each other in jest, and I feel that when I look at them, I do not know them as much as I think I do, or that they have some secret knowledge they will not speak. They are in a world with rules the rest of us do not know or have forgotten. Of course, those who do not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it, and we could stand to keep that in our hearts. But I would be certain of nothing, Miss Rutledge. Perhaps the children have boarded their own ark to get out of whatever may be coming for us, but I suspicion that it is not from punishment that the children have left. In their secret hearts, they would not act to hurt us. I saw a grand conviction in Levi's gaze off the porch that night. I imagine the rest of them were of similar fortitude. By this moment, the fire may have been a horsefly buzzing outside a window for how little we were paying mind to it. Reason and good faith were in feeble form. The mere thought of God's disapproval had grown from a foolish weed to a soul-smothering thicket, taking root in some twenty-odd of the crowd, all drifting in closer to Simon Henley. And he addressed his flock. I have seen the children. Please, Simon, Harriet Book said. That is a cruel lie, even for you. They are in the wood, healthy and hale. They flee like deer when you approach, but they are there all the same. The whole pack of them, waiting for whatever drew them away. You are telling a story, Simon Henley. I only tell what I know. They are contented with God and he with them. Hester speaks true that they will not return. In her raised brow, glistening with a cold, relieved sweat, I saw on Hester Rutledge's face the look of one who has clasped the hand that reaches out for them. I knew that Simon Henley saw the same thing. I understand that this is a hard world for us to live in. Believe me, I do. Claude Ranville said. But if we don't act to better it, our lot in life will surely sink deeper into the dust. Indeed it will. Look around you. If not the children, who no longer darken your doors. If not your dead crop. If not your ale and stock. And your burning plains, there are threats yet to come. There are foul men in Kansas as we speak, carding machines with them to draw foul air from the earth. Their eyes are clouded with greed. It's not long before their ways will get at the rest of you. Now, by, by God's grace, this town has not seen some of the sinful things that fester around the rest of the country yet. But now our land will be spoiled with smoke, iron, and gold. It will be the spoiled land that we deserve. 
This is the talk of your preacher, Simon Henley, replied Harriet Book. That grave man who came to this town and poured your ears full of spite and ire. I sold him a ticket out not two weeks from when he came. No doubt he was headed down the tracks to hiss and crow at some people in another fair town. I should dread to see such hate in you, such notions of an unmerciful God. The sun had jumped the horizon now to cast its longest shadows of the day. Rays shone dimly through the smoke, and every word from every mouth seemed a fearful thing. Few of us had seen the traveling preacher speak, but word of his severity and ill countenance had traveled far. His was a mean new religion, but it felt so old. And not just Simon Henley, but now Hester Rutledge as well took up his cause. Oh, so you're fearful of the people on the other end of the tracks, Miss Book? I should think you'd agree about keeping this sort out of Carlisle. There are no walls upon the plains, Miss Rutledge. There is no keeping out, said Amelia Store. I know who and what's out there and what they bring. The cloud that preacher brought is here to stay and you're keeping it here. Our modest way can outlast it and even spread beyond this place we wanted, but it won't keep if you and Mr. Henley think it better to admonish us rather than help your neighbors. It is not unlike sinners to have such disdain for righteous admonishment. We keep good homes here, Mr. Henley. You should know that, seeing as you left one. Ah, Bully for you, Miss Stewart. But if you see it, as you say, that I am not endeavoring to help my neighbors, then you do not understand my words at all. I am, in earnest, saying what need be said to save your soul. We will not have this. Mutterings were breaking out across the field, and a great unrest hummed in the air. The morning shadows darkened the faces of my neighbors, my friends. Vile words of banishment and forceful ends fell on both sides of the fissure. Will you permit a bold claim? I have known this town all my life, and I feel that I know what it was like even before my birth. We have grown tough against winter storms and dust, against sickness and at times feelings of bad faith but we have never taken up against each other. Even James Ian Maynard was flooded this day by emotion. This disruption is grounds for exile, banishment. It is reckless and endangering to all of us and our standing in God's eyes. We do not banish each other, I cried out, but none would hear. The bickering and the shouting swarmed around me. I covered my eyes in the unbearable din, and in the darkness behind my eyelids, I found a deep hush. When I lowered my hands, I saw that the silence was not only mine. All were still. I thought it a miracle from God. But then I turned and saw that it was not God that they had stopped for. It was Abner Carmine. End of Act One. There will be a two-minute intermission.
Act 2. Yes, indeed. That very same Abner Carmine, who along with Millicent Stewart, Ada Rothschild, and Mother LeBeau laid down the foundations of our fair town in 1857. Abner was our only surviving founder, and as such, his presence in all this sure took the wind from the valley. I thought it both unaccountable and yet right that he should be here to see the end of the town, if end it must. This was a grave thought, and I perished it, right in time for Abner to speak his first piece. Be still for a moment. The sycamore is speaking. And how quiet we were. It was Amelia Stewart who saw fit to answer the tree. Make no mistake, my friends. This is the voice of God. Simon tells a half-truth, but it is a truth, however you have it. This, in front of our eyes, is action, direct and simple. This flame is a call, a blunt and hearty call to do this one small doing, to quell it, our first problem. Then, the rest, one by one. This is the first, the children next, the crop then after, everything that ails in due order and time. By dousing this fire, we will kindle the flame that will warm our days to come. This winter may be colder than the last, but the means to heat it are much the same as they've always been. Fire, before our eyes, he is showing us the way, and he will take our hands if we offer it for the taking. There is work to be done, and salvation in it. Miss Stewart, you insult all present to say they haven't labored for their keep. They have worked on this town, finger down, to bone, all of them, all of you. That is not the work that need be done today. Simon Henley said, Abner Carmine was mountainous and unmoving. He spoke again. Young Mr. Henley, it is not becoming of you to discount the power of an honest day of work. Should it be a hand in the fields or the grinding of a mortar and pestle, and the careful application of a treatment for one's ails. You may not remember them, but I still see clearly the days when such a well-reasoned remedy was all that kept you in this world. I saw Simon's face twist at this, as does the face of a guilty child. And I am sure to think you would have been grateful for it then, to your mother and your father both awake through the day and night to see to it that one too young to fight for himself had the chance to grow to be here today when they are not. They work to save you a day at a time. You can do the same. You can do the same. Yes, surely you can. Join your neighbors and Take up a pail of water. That's all need be done. Across the field, many a set of eyes were fixed on the ground in solemn consideration of the dirt and how it rises to us. How it rose to Nanny and Howard, pulled them down as roots to form our solid footing. I could feel the sadness and hope of the crowd, their desperate need for Abner's words to ring true. He had stated his peace, and with no more left for him to do, he turned and made his way back home to rest and ponder further. This is the right of the elderly, and it suited him well. He knew his words held esteem. Even Simon Henley dared not talk back in his presence. So his long walk home was waited out by the silence of all present. Through this moment, I watched Simon and waited for him to join us. Finally, when Abner was a blurry speck upon the horizon, 
Simon softly stepped to the nearest full pail left abandoned on the ground and gazed down into its water. He picked it up. I could not help drawing breath. And then he spoke. You and your pails. You put so much stock in them. You think you can put out this fire? Well, let me tell you, there's only one who will put out this fire. And he is going to do it. And how mighty and terrible it will be. This tree is the signal. He will douse the flame, but not before we can heed the warning. He will drench us with more water than 10 million of you could ever carry in a pail from a well. A great flood is coming. And at this, he tossed the pail aside, spilling the water where it could be of no use. I took my right wrist in my left hand to hold it still, crossed both in front of my chest. At his words, I had felt the breath from my lungs escape and all my torso shrinking with its leave. The great flood again, here in Kansas. How many nights I had thought the stars a river so teeming with life that it is one day certain to come rushing back into our world. Now Simon Hanley saw it too. And from seeing the faces around, so many with the distant stare of visions and daydreams coming back at once, I suspected Simon Henley and I had company in this vision. We are played out. I see it on your faces. You are waiting for it to happen, waiting for God to come. Perhaps you will not admit it. Perhaps you thought God was... Huh. Looking away. Turning his eyes from us. No. Oh, no. You knew. He is here. He is watching. And he is wrathy. You knew he was around, and yet you lived in peace, saying nothing, because that was your God, the one who only whispered. It was easier for him to be up in the sky, away from you, so you ignored him on your doorstep. But if you listen, if you listen, he will speak aloud. Sometimes he says the things we don't want to hear. Yeah. He says the truth. The sinner sees the flood water rising and tells his neighbor it's just the rain. But deep down, uh, he knows. He knows. You think God is someone else. You are in fright that he is real and he is clothed in power and that you have none. But that's just it, ain't it? God's truth is fear. You feel the fear. And don't let yourself understand that that's his presence in you. This was Simon Henley's truth. Finally come out plain. James Ian Maynard, for one, was not so fearful. Why isn't Lillian St. Andrew here to say all this herself, Simon? It was bold of Maynard to invoke Lillian's name. Never in my time has anyone in Carlisle wavered on the path as much as she. We had been much disturbed by her dark presence in recent weeks. Some say she is in a waking hell, and that foul preacher for one thought it right to leave her there. 
We do not forget her screeching tirade of damnation staggering about to wake snakes. So has she now grown fond of working through a mouthpiece? Or is she merely given to sloth? Or perhaps she has pulled out all her hair and can make no public showing? She... She is at home with her sins and she cannot be disturbed. Blubbered Simon Henley. I I suggest you learn from her. You should all be at home, focused on your personal relationship with God. And yet here you, you, you mock the one amongst us who saw the truth and took proper action. I, (laughs) well, I have no more words for your insolence. No more. She has the right of it. You can't comfort mourning sinners. You each must mourn. God lit this tree in righteous fire. Your pails may as well be empty. He'll put it out when he feels like it. When we've all come to him in the right way. Alone. In penitence. He won't suffer any fools who sit on the public mourner's bench, clutching each other and pretending your neighbor can carry you to heaven. There are so many among us who know nothing of God. They sin, they sin, and they do not see or admit that they do it. And they curse this Mm, they bring this flood. If they come to God like he wants them to, flood might not wash us all away. Unless they keep their sins from God. He knows them, yes. But it don't mean anything if you don't tell them. Behind us, the fire reached out with its long and greedy fingers, stuck pointing at the sky. I saw folks stepping away from the tree as its heat became too much to take. Simon's eyes searched the crowd. When they fixed on Hubert Powell, I saw in them such glee, such terrible glee. I never knew Hubert Powell to have much resolve, and any he had crumbled beneath Simon's gaze. He threw himself forward and wallowed in the dirt. Oh, Simon. Simon, you speak my truth, but you do not understand how torturous it has been in my darkest reaches. I do not know how I arrived at them, but Simon, in the night I was plagued of these thoughts. I wanted to leave this town. I wanted to leave it to taste this new world that we hear about from time to time. The new world and its machines and books and music, it's coming for us. I thought it best to start living in it instead of being erased by it. I did not want to die here. And then the plague. To see them all go like that was unnatural. I did not want to believe in a God who would take such as this. I, I thought of a dark presence. Simon, I hated my thoughts for it. You must believe me. I tried to stave it off for so long. Simon, I, I thought of my sister as a witch, draining my family. I thought it, I, I dreamt of cutting out her heart to save my family, to stop this consuming. Hubert Powell said, If you'll permit me to admit it, even I had faltered at this. Along with Simon Henley, you could see the flash of disgust in his countenance. But he took it in stride quick enough. Are you a sinner, Hubert Powell? Yes, Simon. Yes. And I knew it. For there is a noise that kept me awake all night. So present. A part of the air I breathe. Everywhere I walked. This noise that wouldn't go away. I thought it a sign. The noise is the punishment for my sin. My sister then fell prey to the same disease. 
I had thought of cutting out her heart, Simon. And here she was, so innocent and mortal, as you or I. I am a sinner, Simon. I bring the flood. The noise fills my air, and it is my sin, and it fills the air. It comes from far away, from beyond the tracks. It comes to punish me for my bad faith, and for my dark heart, and for wanting my house's misery to end by such godless means. Go home, Hubert Powell. Tell God of your sins, and beg his mercy. Yes, Simon. Yes, I will beg him to stay his hand. Hubert Powell rose and began to limp away from us all. He stumbled and proceeded to crawl. But before he could clear the crowd, he found a hand on his shoulder, pulling him to his feet. I hear it too. The hand and the words were from Harriet Book. For some time this year, I've heard it, Hubert Powell. It is not your punishment. It seemed that the planes themselves exhaled. First, there were murmurs. And then all manner of voices began to speak, some for the first time this morning. Come to it, every soul in this town had been hearing that noise in the air. And do not think I am telling stories when I say that I had been too. We are all present with the noise, Hubert Powell. Amelia Stewart said, and so we will address it together. You need not be alone. Several along with her approached Hubert Powell to lay a comforting hand on his troubles, and at this he collapsed to the ground. The day had become too much for him to take, but in his heap he seemed at rest for the first time, and I suspect longer than any of us knew. Simon Henley began shouting at us. <laughs> you are saucy indeed to take up with him. You all heard this noise. You want to believe it means anything else than that you all truck in the same transgressions against God. You all drip in sin. We do not truck in sin, sir, said Claude Ranville. Simon would not have it. Dripping in sin. He'll wash you away. Simon, enough. Hester Rutledge said, Where were you when he made the world? Huh? Where were any of us? I am fearful beyond words at what is happening here, but you know no better than any of us. I know not why a tree burns behind us, but it is as simple a truth as any that none of us can return home to pray if we've no home left. Curse you for swaying me from such easy truths. The way is hard and unclear, but it does not lie with you. My heart swelled to see Hester move against Simon in this way, and it shook him. It is a sinner. 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 Muttered Simon Henley, a no account by the estimation of most folk you speak to. He was played out. Hubert, rise up, Hubert Powell. Have you the strength to carry a pail? We would be grateful of your help and not soon forget it. Harriet Book extended her hand to Hubert Powell, but before he could even lift a finger in response, the fire leapt from the tree and caught in its grasp a patch of dried grass some twenty paces from the trunk. We saw it not as an omen, but as a call. Hubert Powell rose, and all did with him. We saw the flames ripple across the dry grass and approach the steps of the post office. Some of the wood there was damp, and it belched smoke into the air. 
But it did not stop the blaze for long, and the tongues of the fire were creeping around the supports and timbers. The time had come. Hubert Powell grabbed the first pail and made his way to the post office steps. He quickened his pace and raised the pail to cast its water as widely as he could. There were more of us just behind him in wordless unity. And yet, as a shade passes, Simon Henley was there to block our way. He struck Hubert from the side, toppling him to the ground. The bucket was overturned on Hubert, soaking his rude clothing. Sorry, I leech! You'll bathe in hellfire for this! Stop, stop! Your skin will be flayed from your bones and you will be left to dry out on the shores of a burning lake! He screamed. Simon began to drag Hubert by his collar with violence, each time slipping from his hand and grabbing more forcefully the next. His eyes burned with more than the reflection of the fire. I saw a loathing like none I have ever known. Get up! Simon! Sinner! Simon! Go make your peace, wretches. Wretches, all of you! There must be moaning and mourning in every house in this town today! Let this ruin burn! Cause when the flood comes, it either takes you as a sinner, or takes you at peace with God, and you'll know you suffered right up to the end. The way Jesus suffered. Either way ain't gonna be anything left. Hubert still wasn't giving in to Simon's intended motions for him, so Simon threw him to the ground and loomed over him. I think he expected Hubert to cow to him at last, but to his credit, Hubert Powell did not. He was quiet, and so were the rest of us. Had there not been the hiss of the spreading fire, it would have been silent enough to hear the strange noise in the air. We stared at Simon like angels of stone in a churchyard. Perhaps it was this way for only a moment. Perhaps it was minutes. I cannot say. But when Simon Henley looked up from Hubert's face to see our faces, it set something different in his brain. And so, when he looked back down at Hubert's face, he saw the scratches on it, the little droplets of blood seeping up and rolling down. He thought of how that felt, how Hubert was losing little pieces of himself, drop by drop, by Simon's hand. I could see this all going through his head from the way Simon's shoulders drooped while he was looking at Hubert. And so when Simon looked back up at us again, seeing the cold stares, seeing the families holding on to each other tight, seeing hands clasped in prayer for him, well, all that was left in his eyes was desperation. His form was soft now, not so crooked and sharp as he'd always preferred to hold himself. And then, Harriet Book was striding toward him. She stopped a breath away from Simon's sweating face. They held a gaze. Seems as though it might snow again soon. We have a few extra bundles of firewood at the station. Would you like to have them, Simon Henley? I thought it would be longer for her words to reach him. Instead, they stirred in him immediately. I saw his tears overrun his eyes and cheeks. He bent and picked up Hubert's pail of water and made for the tree. We all did. And Simon Henley, he became just the same as any one of us. 
dutifully filling and passing and throwing pails. As that morning turned to noon, at one point or another, I stood shoulder to shoulder with every single person in that town. There was work to be done. We did as Abner Carmine said and listened to the tree as it told us how and why we were to put out this fire. I gave thanks that we got the message. I hope it is of use to you as well. If there was a girl who went to hell, I can see why she'd want us all to join her there. Pain and loneliness walk together, after all. Maybe she thought God hated us, but I don't think that gives him enough credit. It's hard to love. It's hard to forgive. It's easier to say the stars are going to go out and we're going to fade away in the dark. I told you earlier that God might wonder what we'd do if he turned out the lights. But he doesn't have to worry. Not here. To see him smile at you is hard going, but all work that's worth doing is hard. And at the day's end, you lie in your bed and you know your work was good and right. It's not all bad. I have never thought the good book to be so absolute. Flood'll come if flood'll come, and when it does, it'll wash out the dust and the dry, and make right the balance in things, between dirt and the stars, between a lot of something and a lot of nothing. That's what faith is. Only in a fearful head does a balance in things ring of calamity. If you live right, it surely makes no difference how hard it gets in between. One way or another, the good will make it out and on to whatever life comes after. That's revival. Here I go with my thoughts again. In these shorter days, I do wonder where they come from. Not a soul's coming into this town, but these ideas just keep coming into me. I cannot say from where I am hearing them. It's like this noise in the air. Like I can hear everywhere, all at once. Everywhere in the world, right here in Carlisle. Everything is going to change. Everything, like all these words and voices and ideas, are showing us God anew. And we, in his image, are new too, full of so many thoughts, near passing out from the weight of them. But if you go round listening to every noise in the air, you'll miss the sound of your own footsteps. If you fall, you find it in yourself to stand. That's just the way of it sometimes. And I tell you, sure is all I know, that's the way it is right now. The sun is gone now, and I'm afraid my pen is getting tired. I am going to ready my bed and leave you to your own matters. It's my time to rest, and what a time for rest it is. Outside my window, I am seeing the sparse flakes of a fresh snowfall. Even as I make my pen race across the page, it is getting heavier, floating so gently. From the sound of it, or rather, from that I am hearing no sound at all, the wind seems to have gone to bed for the night as well. All is still. Quiet enough even, I can hear the noise in the air again. It's everlasting hum. Though, there's something else in my ear as well. Something I cannot quite place. 
what sounds to be around a few dozen feet beyond my door. I am possessed with curiosity. I must see this for myself. I gather my cloak about my shoulders and descend the stairs. I open the front door and a draft of snow blows in. With it comes a small, perfect thing. A long flower, surely the last remnant of the bloom before the cold. I pick it up and put it in a vase on the windowsill, just so. With that, I leave the inn, and standing on the front step, I see them. Out in the snow, near the tree that still stands proud, even in its barrenness, in the soft light of lanterns illuminating their faces. The children. They are murmuring amongst themselves. They are not dressed in clothes suitable for the cold that is soon to come, but I know that they do not much care. Their smiles are warm enough. Others are joining me now, drawn from their homes to return to the heart of this town, as they did this morning, a time that seems so far away now. They are returning to their lost daughters and sons, their lost grandchildren, the parts of their spirits that were untethered, now joined again. And now I'm looking on all their faces, cheeks ruddy from the chill, and yet glowing in a way that the cruelest breeze could never abash. The children are humming a sweet and inviting melody. The music is a river, and I cannot help but step into it. Why should I be idle while there's so much to do? The wheat is ripe to harvest and the laborers are few. The laborers are few and still there's much to do. The wheat is ripe to harvest and the laborers are few. joined me in song. Oh, This refrain is where Clara Roberts' journal ends. With her last words, the snow begins to blow sharply sideways through the night. The choir formed in Carlisle Center watches it whipped into a frenzy, and their faces warm in the cold air. In the swirl of the flakes, there is a fullness that permeates everyone present. The whole town gathered as one for the second time that day. And with their hearts, so too does the air feel full. The children find their families and share an embrace, while faintly from all sides there is a noise. The citizens of Carlisle, Kansas continue the song, encircling the burnt husk of a majestic sycamore still standing at the center of their town. As their voices ring in the night, the noise in the air begins to build against the refrain. The townspeople disperse, still carrying the tune, as in their heads, thoughts buzz of the next day's work and the strange world in which they all live. They pull each other close, and perhaps the walk home will not be so long, even in the dark. 
but like 10,000 trains approaching from everywhere all at once. The noise rises in the air, greater and grander in intensity with each passing second. The night is lost in a fierce gale of snow and sound.